have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. And so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. It's good, that isn't it? It's good. And one of the first things that jumps out in that passage for me, it's right near the very beginning. And Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, how can you challenge my authority as a preacher of the gospel? Because you guys are the evidence of me preaching the gospel. He's saying to them, you are the stamp of my authority as a preacher of the gospel. The very fact that they are in a church hearing this letter as Christians was because Paul spoke to them. He shared the good news. He preached it. He grabbed people. He dragged them into church with him. He was like, come and hear the good news. You see, Paul lived in a time then where there was a lot of people around who were claiming to preach the gospel, who were claiming to have religious truths and who were using it to make money, to lie to people, to steal, to deceive people. There was a lot of misunderstanding and just non-truth going around. So Paul is saying to them, how can you doubt me? I preach the gospel to you and you are the stamp of my authority as an apostle. That's amazing, isn't it? That the people who came to him are the very evidence that he was doing what God was calling him to do. He says that you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. I just think that's incredible. There's evidence for the fact that he was an apostle. There was evidence for the fact that he had been doing what God had called him to do. You could trace the trail back and find that people were in church and meeting with God because of what Paul had said and what he preached. It's amazing. Um, when I was in my final year at university, I received the scariest phone call that I've ever received in my life. Um, it wasn't from the guy in the Scream movies. Um, it also wasn't from my work telling me that I'd missed yet another shift. Um, but it was from Glasgow Sheriff Court. Um, and it went along the lines of this. Hello, Mr. Robertson. Uh, in a slightly less friendly tone than that, actually. It was a, hello, Mr. Robertson. Um, because you have missed your court date today, there's now a warrant out for your arrest. Um, we suggest that you turn yourself over to your local police station immediately to save yourself from further consequences thank you very much goodbye ding phone down and I was like oh my goodness like there's there's a, there's a warrant out for my arrest and so I started racking my brain you know that way I hadn't done anything but I was like what have I missed here have I got outstanding parking tickets have I got something I've not drunk alcohol in four years I can't have done something and forgotten about it I don't know what's going on so I completely panicked and I was like, I do not know what I'm going to do. So I phoned the court back and in my friendliest tone possible, I was like, I, th I think there's maybe been a little mistake here somewhere. Along. I think something's gone wrong. And so I explained what, what had happened. I had absolutely no idea what this was about. And they said, well, you have to go down to your local police station um, and talk it through with them. And so I was like, there's no way I'm going down to my local police station. Like, they're just going to arrest me. I'm going to be like, wrongfully, this is a trick. They just want me in there and they're going to take me into the cells. So I did what every brave young man was. And I took my mum with me to the police station. <laughs> I was like, don't let them take me, mum. Don't let them take me. 
And we went to the police station with all my ID and my passports and everything that I could have. And I went through the story with them. And they were like, where were you on this night? Where were you on this night? And I was like, not there. Definitely not there. And eventually they went back and looked at CCTV footage. And it turned out that somebody had been getting arrested and using all of my details to like my date of birth, my address, everything. And when they got arrested twice um, for breach of the peace and being drunk and disorderly. Um, and so I had to give them all this evidence that I was who I was saying that I was. I had to give them all this stuff over and all these times and places that I'd been to say that I wasn't the person that they were trying to arrest. And eventually it got ironed out. Although every time I send off a disclosure to this day, they send me back saying, oh, we're not allowed to disclose you because you've got a criminal record, um, which is a bit awkward and you have to go through all this stuff. But anyway, the point was I had to provide evidence to say that I was who I was saying that I was. And we look at this passage and we see that Paul truly is an authentic apostle of Jesus because there's evidence that he is doing what God has called him to do. The very fact that there's people in a church in Corinth suggests that he is doing what God called him to do. They are the stamp of his authority. People would be able to say things like, I heard about Jesus because Paul told me about him. I'm in church because Paul invited me. I'm growing in my relationship with God because Paul has discipled me and prayed for me. They were the very stamp on his authority as an apostle. And for us, that raises a bit of an uncomfortable question, doesn't it? When we ask that same question in our lives, who are the people and what are the things in our lives that are the stamps of our authority as Christians? Who or what has been visibly marked by our faith? When the world looks in at us as Christians, what evidence are they seeing that we are living lives that are sold out and authentically following Jesus? It's a big question, isn't it? I was thinking about that this week and it made me feel uncomfortable. And even this week, I came into a situation where I had the chance to show Jesus' love to somebody and I totally failed. I was in the queue in the supermarket. I was waiting to buy my stuff for dinner um, and the girl in front of me in the queue uh, had put through all of her shopping. She got to the very end, started delving through her bag, couldn't find her purse. And in my head, I'm like, I'll pay for her shopping. Like, this is a great chance. I'm going to pay for her shopping and I'll just say, like, I want you to know that Jesus loves you because he loves me and this is just what I want to do to show you that. And then it rung up and it was 27 quid and I was like, hmm... That's probably a bit more than I thought it looked like it was when it was going through the till. Um, and then in my head, I, could, I start backtracking. I'm like, it's probably not appropriate for me to buy a single girl shopping. That probably sends off a bad thing. And it's probably not the right thing to do. And I totally, this is me being completely honest with you, totally bottled it in the moment, backed away from it. And the girl had to go and take her stuff to customer services. And as I left the car park in the car, I was like... Oh my goodness, what a failure. Has anyone else ever found themselves in a situation like that? Can we get a wee show of hands? Thank goodness. I thought I may just possibly be the worst Christian in the world. It's nice to know that we're all in the same boat. But isn't that interesting? Like, isn't that, isn't that an interesting thing to think about? Like, I've been hanging on that all this week. Like, if £27 was the cost for her to know Jesus, I want to be willing to pay that over and over again. If 10 minutes of my time is the cost for somebody to get to see a glimpse of Jesus' love for them, I want to give that 10 minutes over and over again. I want to be like Paul. And I want to be like Jesus. You know, he left us this amazing mission. In Matthew 28, 
verse 16 to 20, it says this. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, and this is the important part, of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, we are called into a world that is the whole world. We are not called to gather a couple of people to Jesus. There's not a set number, you know, there's not like once we get to a thousand, we can all stop and celebrate and that's our work done. We are called to bring all nations into a relationship with Jesus. But the amazing part about it is this, that last sentence that he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We're not doing this alone. It's not on us. You know, we could run about like mad from now to the day we die, trying to gather as many people for Jesus as we can, just shouting at people and flinging Bibles in people's directions and, you know, hauling them into Alpha courses. But it's not about that. It's about walking this journey with Jesus. And as he prompts us and as he tells us, you know, go, You've all had that feeling where you see somebody in the street and you get that arch inside you to just do something about a situation, whether it's buying a lunch for someone or helping someone with a flat tire or getting alongside a friend who's lost someone and just is grieving and hurting. Jesus prompts us in those situations. And as we see that happen, we will then see people become the stamp of our authority as Christians. People are the evidence of our faith in action. And we've seen that to a degree in our church already, but wouldn't it be amazing if we saw even more a church that was filled with people who can testify to Jesus' love in their life because of the love and deeds, actions and words of us as a church? Wouldn't that be incredible? So we're called to something more, aren't we? We're called to be the light to this world. And as people come in, they are the stamp of our authority, of us as authentic Christians who put our faith in action each and every day. It's a big challenge, isn't it? I think we can do it. So Paul's talking about that. He's talking about our authority as Christians being shown in the evidence of how our faith works out. And secondly, he talks about um, his rights as an apostle. He goes on in this passage to talk about his rights. What is he dutifully um, due as an apostle and rights are something that we talk about quite a lot in our society nowadays don't we? we talk about our human rights we talk about our rights to free speech we talk about our right to vote and they're all really super important things but we also all hold on to a bunch of rights that maybe aren't as important but they're super important to ourselves like for me I feel like I have the right to pudding after every dinner like I feel like that is a right that has to be um, seen um, for Sarah she feels like she has the right to only watch thriller movies anytime we sit down to watch a movie together it's always a crime thriller you know for some of us we feel like we have the right to drive a nice car or to live in a big house or to um, be a certain kind of person we've got all these rights and Paul's talking here about some of the things he has the right to as an apostle and in verse 3 he talks about this he says he's got the right to food and drink he's got the right to a believing wife He's got the right to take material things from those that he's preaching the gospel to, to reap a harvest um, in material things from the people that he's sowing spiritual seed into. And he puts it in context by giving a couple of examples, doesn't he? He says, what soldier, you know, goes off to war at his own expense? 
doesn't. He gets paid for it and looked after and put up and fed and all that stuff. He says, who plants a vineyard and then doesn't use the grapes for themselves? You know, who on earth would build something like that that could sustain them and then never touch the fruit of what came out of it? And he says, even the people in the temple and at the altar, even they are allowed to take a little bit of what is offered up to God to sustain them and keep them going. They all have these rights. But then Paul goes on to say something that's really interesting. It's designed to cause us to look at ourselves, to examine ourselves and ask some questions of ourselves. And he says, I've got all these rights, but I claim not to take them. You know, I don't claim my rights as a preacher because I don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. It's amazing, isn't it? He says, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's made a decision that the preaching of the, of the good news of Jesus is the most important thing in his life and everything else falls into second place after that. He, what, basically what he's saying there is, if you never feed me, I will still preach the gospel to you. If you never pay me, I will still preach the gospel to you. If you never give me a place to stay, I will still preach the gospel to you. If you hate me um, and shout at me and mock me and scorn me, I will still preach the gospel to you. I will continue to preach the gospel to you, to disciple you, to encourage you and help you to grow no matter what. He lays down his own rights because he knows that the speaking of the good news of Jesus is something much more important than his own self and what he wants for himself. I watched an amazing video online this week. I don't know whether any of you have seen, you, uh, seen it. There was a, a filmmaker in Uganda and he was out making a sort of a Christian documentary on the country and he stumbled across these two small children. Um, they were laid out, a little boy and a little girl, they were laid out flat on their stomachs on the ground uh, they couldn't move. Um, they were malnourished to the point where they couldn't move um, anywhere, really. They were just lying on the ground, and they were um, aching and suffering with polio, and they just seemed to be there on their own. There was no sign of parents. There was no sign of anyone else. So that they were sort of, they stumbled across these kids, and they're coming to get alongside them. And, and as they're doing that, another little girl appears um, out of the trees, um, carrying a massive jug of water. And it turns out she's their older sister. She's eight years old. Um, the little boy, I think, was five and the little girl was three. Um, and she was eight. And she'd just been on a massive trek to go and get water to come back for her brother and sister to give them something to drink. Um, and then she sat them up one by one, bathed them. You know, they couldn't move themselves. So she carried them, bathed them, looked after them, put them in a wee mattress, wrapped them up ready for bed. Um, and she couldn't get food for them. She didn't have a job. She couldn't afford that. But she was doing everything that she could to make their life just a little bit easier than what it was. And I was in tears in her office just watching this video. And then the, the guy gave them um, a few biscuits that he had on them. And the little girl took the biscuits. She was starving herself and gave them to her brother and sister first. She split them up to them and kept a little one for herself at the end to eat. And she handed them out to her little brother and her little sister first. And as I watched that video, I watched a girl who got what it was to lay down her own rights. I watched a little girl who'd completely got the fact that she wanted to put her brother and sister before herself and I was just completely blown away by that that is the kind of sacrificial living that we see Paul demonstrating to us here because in our own personal sacrifice comes the salvation of others in our sacrifice comes salvation the little girl was willing to put her siblings first in every moment of her day. She literally never spares a thought for her own self throughout the whole process of it. And that's exactly what Paul's saying in this passage. 
He puts his own needs and longings and desires on the back burner so that the preaching of the good news of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ is done without anything hindering it. Isn't that amazing? And I think when Paul's telling the church in Corinthians this, like, I don't think he's been passive-aggressive, you know? He's very blunt um, when he's wanting to say something, Paul. So I don't think this was him being like, oh, by the way, guys, like, you never pay me or give me food or look after me or anything like that, so you probably want to have a think about that. He wasn't saying that. I think he's sharing this way of living with them as an encouragement and an invitation to them to come and join him in a simpler way of doing life. To lay down their own rights and seek God's kingdom. His will being done is the first priority. And that's an invitation that very much still stands for us today. And it's definitely not the only time in the Bible we're told to lay down our own things. You know, we go through and look chapter 12, verse 16. Um, Jesus tells the parable of a certain rich young man who had an abundant harvest and he's got so much he doesn't know what to do with it and he thinks do you know what I'm going to do I'm going to build even bigger stores just now I'm not going to give it away to anyone I'm just going to build even bigger grain stores so that I can store even more of it and and he talks about how God comes to him at night and says you fool you know you're going to die in your sleep tonight and none of that grain will come with you and then again we see Jesus being sacrificial with his time as well we, we see in Mark um, chapter 1, verse 35, Jesus gets up in the dark of night in the very early morning to go and meet time, uh, to make time with the Father and to meet Jesus, to pray. He sacrifices his sleep and his time to himself to go and meet with God. And then again in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 to 10, it says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many grief. I just think there's something wonderfully exciting about that kind of lifestyle that Paul's talking about. You know, what would our church look like if we lived lives where we were willing to hand down the things that we prioritize for ourselves in order so that someone else could be lifted up in their moment of need? What would that look like? A church that always looks for opportunities to give instead of take so that others can meet Jesus in amongst the kindness and love of his people. I genuinely believe that that is the kind of life that we're being called to as we follow Jesus. An authentic, simple way of following him. But what does that practically look like for us to lay down our rights and live a life that pursues an authentic following of Jesus? Well, I think basically it comes down to this one sentence. Everything we have is a gift from God. And everything we have can be a gift from God. everything we have we've got from him but are we willing to hold it lightly enough so that everything we have can be a gift for someone else it's a challenge isn't it it's a real challenge as I was preparing for the talk this week I got so excited about what that kind of living might look like in our church family what would that demonstrate to the world about the kingdom of heaven 
if we were willing to drop our own wants, our own needs, our own rights, and be willing to pick them up for someone else. I just think that would look incredible, and I feel so challenged about that. I was chatting with um, James Juice, who's a Southside pastor this week, and we were having a wee bit of a chat about evangelism and how do we do it and what do we do and how do we mix things up. And he was reminding me of the, the parable um, in Luke 14, 15 to 24. And it's a parable of the great banquet that the king puts on. Jesus tells this story of a king who's prepared an amazing banquet, the best banquet you will ever see in your life. You know, it's got all of your favorite tastiest treats. Everything that you ever want is there. And, and he says, you know, to his servants, go and invite the people in. Go and tell them what's waiting for them here. Go and explain what an incredible banquet this is. And that's our job. We are the people who get to go into the world and give them a taste of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. What an honour that is. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by loving people well. We do that by putting other people first. We do that by sharing the good news at the opportunities that we get. We do that by being willing to lay down our own rights so that God can use us to see someone else lifted what an honour to be able to take that taste into the world. So we're called to lay down our own rights, to be willing to lay down the things that we hold precious so that God can use us and use them for his kingdom. And the final thing is this, that I see in this passage, that we get to the end and we see that Paul is completely compelled by his calling. We get to see Paul's conviction. Why is it that he's willing to lay down his rights? Why is it that he's able to forgo all this stuff that's due to him? He says this in verse 16, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Thanks, KF. Cheers. And I love that phrase he uses in that passage. He doesn't say, I like preaching the gospel. He doesn't say, it's a nice hobby to preach the gospel. He doesn't say, I like to preach the gospel over and again. He says, I am compelled to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I'm not preaching the gospel, it's terrible. I need to preach the gospel. He's met with Jesus and he has a depth of relationship with Jesus that makes him absolutely certain about what he is called to do. He knows that Jesus has called him to preach the gospel to the people that he sent him to. And he's certain of that. He knows the Father. He knows his calling. He's compelled by the Father into his calling. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation um, where something's going on and everything within you is crying out to do something and all your logical thinking and everything else falls by the wayside um, because you're compelled to do this thing. For me, when I was 21, I was compelled to get a tattoo. Um, and uh, to say that it was against the advice of my parents would be an understatement. Um, I think the words that my mum used would be, you won't be living under my roof if you come back with a tattoo. Um, so that was going on in the background. I had no money. I'd just graduated from university. Um, and so I didn't have money to get a tattoo. But still, I was like, I really want to get a tattoo. I need to find a way of making this work. I'm absolutely sure that this is what I want to do. So I borrowed some money off a mate. I scraped together the little bit of money I had left. And I went into the tattoo shop with this plan of just hiding it from my mum and just making sure that she didn't see it. 
A day I survived in our house with my hidden tattoo before my mum got wind of the fact that I'd got my tattoo. Um, and to say that a few tears were shed um, would be a not very accurate description of the aftermath of the tattoo gate. Um, <laughs> but it didn't make sense for me to get it. I knew that there was a world of trouble waiting for me when it happened. I didn't have the money to do it. I didn't have anything that was in place. This is not a great example, by the way. I'm not sharing this as like a follow me in this. <laughs> But I was so compelled to do it that all of that other stuff fell by the wayside. And that is what Paul is talking about in this passage. He is so compelled to preach the good news of Jesus, that logical thinking, that everything else falls by the wayside so that he can preach the good news. When it is dangerous, Paul preaches the good news. When people have stopped listening, he's still preaching the good news. When people are mocking him and laughing at him, he is still preaching the good news. When he's put in prison, he is still preaching the good news. And do you know what that means? When people are ready to listen and they're ready to accept Jesus into their life, guess what Paul's doing? He's still preaching the good news. So at the moment when someone is ready to give their lives to Jesus and hear about the truth for the first time, Paul is your man because he has been preaching the good news the whole way through, compelled by Christ to follow his calling in every second of every day. I want to be like Paul. I want to be compelled to action. And that raises two questions for us, doesn't it? If we look at that life of Paul, the first one is this. What is God calling you into? For some of us here, we will be certain about what God's called us to do. For some of us here, we'll have heard a call and we've forgotten about it. And for some of us, we'll feel like we've never been called by God into anything. And my encouragement for us today is this. If you don't know what God is calling you specifically to do, please go and ask him. Spend some time with him. Ask the question, God, what is it that you're calling me to give my life to? I don't just want to do mediocre Christianity. I want to be sold out, all in, following you to the place where you've called me to be, to the people that you've called me to go to with everything that I am. And part one of that is, where are you calling me and who are you calling me to? So if you don't know what that is this morning, I would really encourage you, please seek God and ask him because he'll tell you. And he speaks to us all in different ways. You might get a letter from an organization you've never heard of saying we need help the day after you've prayed it. You might get a word from somebody who says, I really feel like God's saying this to you, but he will speak to you when you ask that question. So you need to know where he's calling you and who he's calling you to. But the second thing is this, am I compelled to go and do that? where it consumes my life, or is, is God's calling on my life an afterthought on the rest of what I do? You know, for Paul, he was completely compelled. He was consumed by the good news to the point where he couldn't do anything but speak about the good news. For Sarah and I, we're having a baby, and just now we are consumed with baby chat. Everything that I talk about is baby chat. I talk about isofix points in the car. I talk about self-rocking chairs. These are all things that I've discovered over these last few weeks, and I'm so sorry if I've tried to chat to you about these and you have no interest in isofix points or self-rocking chairs. But it's consuming my thoughts because I know that in 15 weeks' time, a little baby's going to arrive here, and I know that I want to be prepared and ready to do it. But more than that, more than I want to be consumed by the thoughts for that little child when they get here, I want to be consumed by the thoughts of what God is calling me to do and how I can be prepared as best as possible to go where he's calling me to go and to meet who he's calling me to meet. So we have to be compelled by our calling. 
And I would just really encourage us to seek him on that today. How would our lives look differently if we were compelled, not just occasionally visiting our calling from God, but literally consumed by it, consumed by him, consumed by his love, consumed by a relationship with him to the point where everything we do or say, everywhere we go, is an effort to bring his kingdom. Why don't we stand together and pray?